Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends. So thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to The New Man, Beyond the Macho Jerk and the New Age Wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lanier. Do you believe that if you make enough money, have enough sex, do enough drugs, meditate, whatever, that you'll be able to escape the frustration of living? Is your striving and seeking making you miserable? And what is more satisfying than tons of sex and mind-crushing drugs? Zen master Junpo Dennis Kelly is back to discuss his life and his attempts to outrun suffering, anger, and the law. Welcome to The New Man. Today we're talking with Junpo Dennis Kelly. He's a Renzai Zen master and the subject of A Heart Blown Open by Keith Martin Smith. Uh, Uncle Junpo, welcome back to The New Man. Hey, good to hear from you, Trip. <laughs> Always great to talk to you. Congratulations. We were just talking about how you, you recently got married. The anarchist and the uh, the bad boy himself finally tied the knot. So uh, congratulations there. Yeah, well, thank you very much. I just got back from Kauai, the uh, Eden of Hawaii. <laughs> that's the best. That's my favorite island. I mean, that's that's the place. Yeah, yeah. and you know what my favorite restaurant was? The Fish uh, market in, uh, Waimea. in Kilauea and Kilauea, excuse me, where you suggested I went, it was just, Oh my God, great food, great prices sitting outside the little, you know, right in the fish market. It's the best. It's the best. My, uh, my sister-in-law used to work there. And so I, there was a, for a time when I would, I'd go out there and stay for weeks at a time. That was just, I ate there probably two times a day. <laughs> it was just, how could I not like, what else was it? What else was it? Were we going to eat? You know, it's the best exactly. place on the planet. So well, I'm glad you checked it out. And congratulations to you again. So uh, I just have to say, you, you have more names than anyone else I've, I think I've ever encountered. Do you, are you aware, have you ever kept count of how many names you've had or, or carry at any given time? No, I haven't. But when, when I was uh, underground running from the feds. Yeah. They gave me a name, the man with a thousand names and a thousand faces. <laughs> I was like, you got your given name. Then you had, you had, well, you were in the LSD circles and running that business. You had Frank and probably a few other names. Then, then as you were on the run, you had a few names. And then even in the, in the Zen lineage, you've got a couple of, of names floating around there. Yeah, I, was, I collect names. 
<laughs> what does that say about a man? <laughs> well, you know, they, they keep, every time you show up in a different persona, every time you're reincarnated, they give you another name. <laughs> and for me, reincarnation isn't about, you know, uh, uh, hallucinations in the sky. You reincarnate right here in time and space. All right. That, well, that sounds like a rabbit hole to go down. Okay. So this is, what, what is a reincarnation for you? Cause I know you'd really don't believe in that stuff. You, you don't believe, you, you know, when you're dead, you're dead. So what is a reincarnation for you? Well, I neither believe or disbelieve. I consider myself a fundamental Buddhist. Okay. And he had something called the unanswerables. All right. And he was asked, does the Tathagata live after, does he, does he live again? And with the Buddhist smile said, Hey, Asshole, we've got more important things to talk about. <laughs> and that's a, I'm paraphrasing, but that's actually what he said. Yeah? Yeah, right. there are certain questions that are, are loops. They are. It's like, what does yeah, it matter anyway, so, right? Yeah. Okay. You know, you, there's no there there, right? And so what do, you, what do you do? Let's go there. Well, what are you talking about? So it gets into this loop of, of belief systems. And a belief system is, is important to have if you're building culture and structure. But with, when you see through it finally, then, you know, if you're a classic Buddhist, you have to be purely agnostic. Candidly, I don't know. The older I get, I would just love to drop into a faith-based belief system. I'm going to be reincarnated <laughs> as the new Dennis Kelly, or the new high, you know, the new evolved, and all the good stuff comes with me, and all the shit stays behind. That's that would be nice, wouldn't it? That'd be nice. Wouldn't it? But, you know, that's just you know, I just can't buy it. But, okay. All right. Well, congrats on the book. What's it like to have a book written about you? I mean, what was how's your what's your reaction? Well, I'm a little embarrassed. You know, I wrote the book primarily, you know, the advice, I've had people approach me over the years to say, okay, it's, you know, let's do your story. And, you know, I've always said, no, no, I'm busy living it, so forget about it. And and I had a conversation with Ken Wilber, who's, you know, who's really helping him. He's got great things to say about the book, great things to say about the Mondo Zen process, the postmodern school I've founded. And uh, I asked him how to get the teaching out. Because, uh, you know, there are thousands of great books on Zen and, you know. And so I said, what's, what's, what's the best way? He said, do your bi- biography first. Get that out there. And then do the Mondo Zen book. He said, it's, it's the way to introduce it. So then... Yeah, Keith knew him well and worked with him, and Keith is a dear friend of mine and student. Actually, I'm Keith's being ordained as a priest in our order next week. Right on. <laughs> week after out in Philadelphia. I was there at the session when he was ordained as a monk, so I was I, I got to witness that too. Well, he wasn't ordained as a monk. He he was he took Jukai, which means he joined the club. Got it. Yeah, he didn't have to shave his head yet. Yeah, and this time I'm not going to make him. I'm very selective in who I allow to shave their head and who not to. The question <laughs> is, why are you shaving your head? You know, you know, it's to remind you of your your vows and your practice. Mm. And now every every jerk <laughs> who wants to be cool shaves his head. <laughs> it's an ear ring and a nose ring, you know, and he's got a shaved head. All so right. now you see a guy with a shaved head, and you think he's an he's a narcissist as opposed to. <laughs> humble monk or humble, humble priest. All right. Well, have you been at who, who who's going to play in the movie then? Well, I was thinking I'd get some plastic surgery and I'd play myself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you reincarnate and you'll just, yeah. we'll just we'll just shoot it that way, really young, and oh, that'll yeah, work out. 
Yeah, and, and you know, since I shave my head still, and it, actually it doesn't matter, most of it's falling out anyway, but I'll, yeah, I can just wear wigs. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, we're thinking of who, you know, I just, I don't know. All right, I, I got some ideas. Um, All right. So we'll keep that. We'll, we'll keep that in mind. But uh, I love the book, and I wish I'd read this book, the, um, "A Heart Blown Open." Uh, I wish I'd read this years ago. For some reason, I got it up my ass that that going on this this personal development journey or this spiritual journey was about perfection or something. There was some trap that I fell into, and I just loved reading your story because it, it's your life's kind of all over the map, and and doing this and doing that and. Wow, is that even morally right? And it was just questionable. But um, so I just felt the sense of forgiveness even come over myself. But during that time, I just kicked my own ass and and gave myself such a hard time trying to meet up to some ideal. And for some reason, reading your story just allowed me to just relax. And that this is it. This is life, and it's all over the place, and it's messy. And nonetheless, we can still orient our lives around some principle and some purpose. Were you aware of that early, early on? Well, I was driven early on. I was I was born in '42 in in northern Wisconsin, right? Which is uh, sort of very uh, <laughs> difficult place to be. Yeah, and I've always been different. So I started asking questions about God and religion and spirituality, ethics and stuff, and, and you know, and uh, uh, was dealing with uh, a very uh, immature, very unenlightened culture. Mm. So I've always been driven to understand why and what and how, and you know, frustrated with my view, my cultural view, and my contemporary view, and not. So then I, you know, this what started that early on. Um, what was your experience? You, the, the, the book starts out with this experience of you as a young boy, your first memory, it, it, at least it claimed to be. And there's a fight going on in the next room. What, what, walk us through that, because it seems to define, it seems to be the starting point for everything that happens after that, to you to come back to this experience. What was that? Yeah, it took me a long, long time to figure that out. When, you know, when did this all start? When did, you know, when did, when did the seed get planted? And uh, so I was, I don't know, two and a half years old or so. My father was home from the Second World War where he spent three tours of duty in Burma with the Air Force and got involved in atrocities with the Japanese against them and for them, like they, were, they would capture airmen and crucify them. The Japanese wow. would and gut them. Wow. They would put them on a cross, tie them to the cross, sometimes nail them to it, and then they'd open their bellies and their intestines and hang out. But it would take them a couple of days to die. Jesus. So he was really messed up by the war, and he, he was when he was drunk, he'd get drunk, he'd become extremely violent. Mm-hmm. When he was sober, he's the greatest guy in the world. He taught me so many wonderful things, but he'd get drunk and for no reason become violent because of the you know the pain that he was in and no way to process it at that time. And uh, so what happened is he and my mother were having an argument. He wasn't physically violent with her, but he would be very verbally violent. And so I was tucked in under the bed in absolute terror in a little puddle of my own piss. Wow. Little chubby hands looking out and just terrified, trying to back further and further into the corner and further and further into the corner. I couldn't go any further. And I was absolutely terrified. And all of a sudden, bam, I went inside. And I went into this incredible state of samadhi. Just this clear, pure consciousness. 
and looking out through these little eyes, I had no mind constructed enough. My wasn't sophisticated enough, and ego developed enough to have any idea what had happened. And it wasn't dissociation. It was just absolute clarity and peace and fearlessness beyond comprehension. Mm. And so I looked out, right, and it was just like, wow. And what was going on just couldn't affect me in any way. Mm. And uh, then, then that passed, and but that was the beginning. And then from that moment on, there was the what, what, who am I? What was that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what drove me finally, eventually, to uh, Buddhism. You know, Buddhist statement: "You are the light." Right. That's the light he was talking about. He's talking about the light of consciousness. From this point of view and experience, you experience your ego as a reflective quality and superficial mind at the surface of the mind. So that flickering takes place, right? But that begins at a particular point as your your, your neurocortex forms, your, your brain forms. But the purity of the consciousness is is deeper than that. So that was the beginning of my quest, but I couldn't even put a language around it. Right, right. And you didn't even know what samadhi was at that time, but there was this, just that, like you said, that clarity and that peace and, and the fearlessness. Um, and so that sets you on that path. Like, I just get like, it wasn't just a mind state, but it was something you felt in your entire body. And it seems like that's what tied together sex, LSD, meditation that it was all where where am i going to find this where am i going to where's the next hit of this did it have that quality that striving quality uh, not at first like i was just a kid you know mm-hmm. a little tiny boy and i would at from time to time have similar experiences for in the momentary experiences just like you know playing with a dog or being in the yard and looking at the sun sunset you know, just some remarkable, uh, just in moment, and I'd be poof, totally conscious again, mm-hmm. deeper than thought or feeling. Mm-hmm. And, and then so it was okay. You know, how do how do I how do I get there? What is that? What is mm-hmm. this anyway? And then my what I said is I say I'm a recovering narcissist. They, right. I think they make the best teachers, and uh, so you know then I was just totally consumed. Well, I started to run from, not from that experience, but from the violence in my family structure. Right. And so I had great issue with trust. My mother fed me to my father in their, in their shit storm relationship. And I was her protector. Mm. And so that created a whole, you know, you know, psychology of mistrust. And then I just started to move very rapidly, you know, so I took life on full to run. And it had that escaping quality. Is that what you said? Like you're trying to just get away from this stuff and just find that peace again. Was that right? Yeah. It was like, I'm on my own. Mm. You know, I can't let anybody close to me too close to me at least. Well, not too close to me until I found, and this is where, where, when I was an adolescent and a late adolescent, I was 16 before I, well, I guess that's not so old for your first sexual experience, but, uh, what I did is I found sexual intimacy to be, uh, to would take me to the same place. Okay. So, and that's always been sacred. For me, there are certain things that are sacred, like in a relationship, sexuality is not to be politicized. Your sexuality is divine play. 
And so when you're when you're in a sexual relationship, sexual contact, that's a divine moment. You're in, you're in in tantric yabyum, right? And that's just not violatable. Hmm. So it's not like politically, I'm having a bad day, or you know, I get in a, I've got a hassle or something I have to deal with with my lover, and we don't we're not lovers now. Right. It's inconceivable. And so that was another thing that, you know, these things drove me crazy. It's like, how can people claim to be lovers? It's even like jealousy. If mm. you're jealous, what what is your understanding of love? Mm. You know, so it's just a whole lot of things drove me wacko. Okay. Yeah. There's that duality, right? You were able to see something that was much, much deeper and much more profound and much more divine, but nonetheless living up here on the surface with the rest of us in this human condition was just driving you batshit, right? Right. Then I eventually discovered psychedelics. When I discovered psychedelics, I tried all the psychedelics and discovered that lysergic acid diethylamide taken in the proper dose in the proper setting totally deconstructed your ego. And took you right back in. And that was the freedom, right? You got to you got to taste that again through LSD? Yeah, I got to taste it and, and you know, sometimes abide in that state for days. I would tell people there isn't an LSD. I manufactured LSD for 10 years, and when I'd get very high and be very high after, I wouldn't come down mm. for five, six days sometimes. And, of course, the LSD wore off in 10 hours. Did that create a duality there, too? Of like, well, how, how come I can't live my life always in this state, even even though I have access to massive amounts of LSD? There seems, did you struggle there? Like, why do I have to come down? Or, or did you... Did you ever just continue to take it and take it and take it? How did you how did you reconcile that? Well, I took it to past the point of reason, right, and took it to the point where and I was taking doses that were massive. I you know I take twenty five thirty hits at a time, and um, and would accomplish the ego death again and again, and then went back to lower doses and I was trying to find to say, well, the same, why wasn't this continuing? And then I realized that that's a biochemical intervention. You literally change your brain chemistry with LSD 25. So how do you go about doing that? How do you, how can you maintain that without taking some substance? So the traditional way or the promised way is through meditative concentration practice in the Hindustani and Buddhist meditative tradition. Meditation has three phases, dharana, which is concentration practice, yabba-dabba-do, yabba-dabba-do, satnam, om namah shivaya, buddha, buddha, whatever you're using to stabilize your consciousness. When you finally stabilize your consciousness, you'll recognize the mind in which that concentration is taking place. It's the mind that's real. The reflective quality is play inside the mind, and our consciousness is what's real. And then what happens is, okay, so finally you have a taste of that mind, the identical mind that I had on LSD, the identical mind that I had brought on induced by a state of terror when I was a child. And, you know, that particular quality of mind, when you recognize this mind, you smile. Hey, <laughs> there you samadhi. are again. <laughs> Call samadhi. Oh, so you can do it the slow, boring, hard way, too. <laughs> <laughs> the trick is to remember Mm. Right, ordinary mind is the way. You know, the, like uh, I love it. Uh, w. C. Fields, I, I say he was a great Zen master because he made the statement: "Never give a seeker an even break." Mm. And of course, what he said was, "Never give a sucker an even break." But if you're seeking, what you're doing is you're holding something. You're holding a flag in front of the mirror. Mm. Right. 
so you have to give up seeking, but how do you give up seeking inside a concentration practice? Yeah. That's a, that's a call on, you know, it's a huge, it's a huge dilemma, right? It's like, well, I'm moving in this direction, but I can't be attached to it. There's like, what's the, I'd see a lot of people just throw their hands up and be like, what's the point? You know, if I'm not supposed to be attached to where I'm going, then why don't I just float around and just let the wind just blow me around? But this practice is very disciplined and very regimented. Yeah, just for just for a decade or two. <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, I was with my my abbot in Japan. Uh, my second year in the monastery, he he took a sabbatical for a year, so he gave me Daibasatsu Zendo in 1983 for a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh no, no, it was 85, and he went back to Japan. And so I was running the place, but I wasn't a recognized teacher or anything. I was just a monk. Mm-hmm. So I was doing Dokusan and holding retreats and everything. It was great training. And then after 10 and a half months, he called me and said, come over to Japan. You know, he said, it would be nice if you could visit Japan with me now. So for three weeks, we ran around together. And, and uh, one night we were having dinner on the same dishes in this private restaurant that was an estate, an industrialist uh, uh, died and his wife was uh, uh, practicing Rinzai Buddhist and he was as well so he, she converted her house into a private restaurant and they had the dishes of the of uh, the Shogun from 300 years before and we had the same Kai Seiki which is a vegetarian meal the same menu of 300 years before so we also drank a lot of sake yeah Sure. And uh, this bishop, there were about 30, 20 of us at that table, and with my translator there, he looks at me, and he's just a real jovial character. He goes, he says, all right, I got a question for you. I said, what's that? And he said, why are you studying with this little weird Japanese guy over here? Mm. He said, you look like a reasonably intelligent gaijin, which means dog. <laughs> uh, you look like a reasonably intelligent American dog. Why are you studying with this guy anyway? Mm. So I thought for a minute quickly, and I said, well, the real reason? I said, he always sits tanto. He's always sitting there during the retreats. He leads the retreats, right? And uh, Bishop Tanaka just spit his sake out. He laughed so hard. And he looked at me with a glint in his eye. He said, don't you realize why he's sitting there? I said, why? He said, because he has to. <laughs> he said, if he was awake, he'd be drinking sake and having dinner somewhere. <laughs> and Roshi, who also got the joke, just roared. You know, you know, it's just very funny. And now, okay, now what's the solution? Back to the Zendo. Back in, back you know, on the, hit the cushion, right? Back to the cushion. And you sit for different reasons. You're sitting initially to struggle for stability. Then you sit for joy and, and uh, union. So it's a different, and, and and that's always waxing and waning. The conditions and circumstances in your life keep changing. Something happens. My mother died. I was teaching in, in uh, Australia last year, in the spring, March 17th. She died on me. I said goodbye, and I, you know, and, and everything, and... Uh, but I'm over there. What am I doing? You know, busting dishes with a bunch of uh, Aussies when I should be in my mom's b- bedside, you know? Mm-hmm. So that came up. I had to drag that shit around for a while. You know, guilt, you know, kind of shame in myself. And then right. just have to laugh, you know? So it's not that you it's not that you wake up and you live in la-la land. Right. You know? Ordinary mind is the way. Deep feeling and, and caring is part of the process. It isn't to, it's to transcend and include. It's not to, you know, not to escape. 
I think that's what a lot of guys are assuming that when we say Zen master, we see a guy in robes or, you know, we look at Yoda or whatever like that. We're going to be able to achieve that one day that there's once we get there, no more challenges, no more problems, no more guilt, no more confusion, no more whatever it is that we're going to, you know, we're going to finally escape and we'll be finally free from all of that. And I just always appreciate how of a just a dude you are. It, it seems like the more that you've gone forward in your, in your path, that the more of just a regular guy, you've been over to my house wearing a Hawaiian shirt and shorts, and we've had beer on, on the, on the porch. And I have to remind myself, wait a second, this guy, his path has been, you know, all over the place and gone so deep, but you just, we had ale on the porch. We had ale. Excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> let me get that right. <laughs> well, I want to come back to a story because, you know, this striving thing, this is something that I personally deal with. And, and I see a lot in, in these like guys that are really into personal development stuff. So let's talk about that story where you were given the koan and you're striving to continue to find this realization and, and then express it to your, to the abbot there, I believe. And you, you set out to, to, to sit nonstop for days, like you and your body's just basically going to blow up because you've been sitting so long. Walk us through that story and then what happened and how you well, basically happened, got it. What happened is there's a classic koan system. Koans are these Zen riddles. You know, does a dog have Buddha nature? What's the sound of one hand clapping? What was mm-hmm. your original face before your mother was born? Mm-hmm. These are all very simple questions. Once you had the insight, like, uh, what was your original face before your mother was born? What is your consciousness deeper? Or what is the root of the consciousness before your ego is established? So are you, are you deep enough and insightful enough to know who you actually are deeper than your thought or your feelings? So these questions are all the original questions are the ones that point and take you to that depth. And the classic first question was, uh, does a dog have Buddha nature? And the old Zen master, Joshu, answered, Moo. He didn't actually say Moo. He said Woo. He was Chinese. And he didn't say Woo. What he actually said was No. Mm. So what is that No? So we practice that in honoring the Japanese tradition with Moo as a concentration practice. Now, I was using Moo at that time. Now I teach it No in a different way, using our language and you know, up, up, updating the system. But that was my original koan, which is classic. We always begin with that koan. There's 1,700 koans, and you begin with Moo. So the question was, does a dog have Moo to nature? The old Zen master, uh, Tang Dynasty master, he said, Chinese master, he said, no, he said, moo. So you concentrate, moo, moo, day in, day in and day out. You know, four hours, five hours a day on a regular day, 13 to 14 hours on, a, on the retreats. Maintaining the integrity is this concentration practice, deeper and deeper into mind, concentrating, concentrating. And I just want to interrupt that, that you can get the answer right. You get the word, but it's where it comes from. Right. That, that, that. Yeah. We call it fingers pointing at the moon. So I can ask you a colon and you get the correct answer. If, if I'm not, if my insight is not real, you can fake it. Mm -hmm. But the colon has to come with the realization. So you have to get through the concentration into the awareness. So what happened is I went in and came in, and it was like the second day of the retreat, and went sat with this Ada Shamani Roshi, who's my abbot, and the one who recognized me as a Zen master, actually. It was his first Dharma era. And uh, what happened was we were doing, doing Mu, and this is early on. So I went in, and he said, okay, what is 
Churchill's moo. So I gave him a moo, and I gave him quite a moo. <laughs> right? But I was pointing. You know, I was coming. The ego understood. I know fucking moo. You know, I got it. I got it. So he just he just laughed and said, "Get out. Get back to the zendo." More sitting. Went, yeah, go sit. Like you're full of shit. And I went. What's he talking about? <laughs> and if if you have to ask yourself what you're ta- what you're talking about, <laughs> you know you're not deep enough in your awareness. Because <laughs> once you've got deep enough in your awareness, the koans become a dialogue. They become banter. Uh-huh. It's fun. You know, you flip stuff back and forth. Okay. So he throws you a question. You do a little Aikido move, flip it back, and throw him on his shoulders or his back, and he has to get <laughs> up and come at you again with, you know, languaging. And it's a lot of fun, but initially. So what happened is I went back. And so for three days, I sat. I sat around the clock. All I did was get up and piss. I'd go eat once a day, right? But I just stayed in the zendo. And, and uh and this was uh, actually at here. This is before my uh, ordination. Okay. And so I went back in three days later and hadn't slept. And the veins were bursted in, in my eyes. So my eyes were red and swollen. They were just like bug-eyed. My hair was kind of like standing on end. Right? <laughs> and I went back in and you know, sat down. And he just kind of moved back in his seat. You sit knee to knee, right? You know, just face to face, right in mm-hmm. front of one another. And so he looked at me and kind of like concerned in his eyes, right? He looked, he looked at me. And so I gave him my move, right? And uh, it was still on the outside, just this incredible, passionate, violent attempt Right, of concentration. Mm. And what he did is he did make uh, screws up his face and he made a fist. And when he made a fist, it became like a pterodactyl or something. It was like, you know, he was reflecting where I was at. Yeah. And then he then he just he just he opened his eyes and he grinned and he looked up at his fist and he, he blew out it and spread the fingers open. And when he did that. I just broke it. Uh, <laughs> I just broke open and the light just shined. Uh, <laughs> I love that story. It moves me so much to hear that story. But what did you get in that moment? What actually can you articulate about what shifted in that moment for you? <laughs> <laughs> Good luck, grasshopper. <laughs> <laughs> But it seemed like that was the dead end of striving. It was, it was only going to, it was, it was the boat of the ego trying to get across the river. It's like, it's only going to take you so far. Yeah. And so it, it, so breakthrough and realize that we're concentrating for a reason. And this is where the Mondo uh, Zen comes in. What I've done is I've updated it with, I consider us a postmodern Zen school. So correct understanding is the beginning Correct understanding is the beginning of the Buddhist practice. You need to understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. So it isn't just a finger pointing at the moon and ritual formality. What happens is there's a reason that you want to stabilize your consciousness. And the koans you're interested in are the koans with your child, with your boss, with your culture, with your eating habits. Are you awake? Are you compassionately, consciously awake? Are you integrated into the reality of life? Are you standing naked in the face of love from the deeper place, honestly being with whatever is, fearless, 
wise, compassionate, and available. And that comes when you when your concentration practice is to develop the ability to be simply with what is. What is, like uh, Byron Katie says, when you argue with what is, you're only wrong 100% of the time. <laughs> uh, that doesn't mean you become a pacifist or some mm-hmm. complacent asshole. You take care of business. We're warriors. But you're a spiritual warrior. And a spiritual warrior is nonviolent. It's like anger. Understand that anger is a violent intervention because you're feeling something deeper than that. So this is okay. So now your anger issues become cons. They become moments of liberation because you can stay concentrated and aware and watch it arise and be with it and realize the confusion. So, but that moment, those moments of awakening to the deeper truth of who you are are essential. Otherwise, you you miss the boat. Do you think that you could take Mondo Zen if you had a time machine and you could go back and talk to yourself back, you know, like when you first landed in San Francisco, would Mondo Zen have been able to kind of permeate that mind or did you need to go through all of these trials and initiations to kind of end up where you were? Do you think you could have shortened the path, so to speak, with Mondo Zen? Not my path. Mondo Zen is uh, uh, is, the, is, the, is a quick path, mm-hmm. but it still is going to require a, a whole lot of practice. Right? But once you change your philosophical understanding and your neurolinguistically reprogrammed your database, you'll discover that you live in another world. And this again is classical Gautama Uda. With our thoughts and our feelings, we construct our world. The airheads want to, and the spoon benders want to think that that means you can change physical form. What it means is that in relationship to the quality of your mind and understanding your consciousness, you build a mind that's constructed on belief and interpretation of feeling. So what we do is we, we reprogram you Right, which we I call it ego deconstruction, reconstruction. I also call it philosophical reindoctrination, which I've had a lot of trouble with. It's, people don't want to argue with that. They say it's rude and it's not exactly true because indoctrination got a bad. <laughs> I go, nobody wants me to have any fun anymore. <laughs> I, I can't imagine the anarchist that's out there pushing reindoctrination that you'd have any trouble with that at all. <laughs> so actually, I've, I've said reconstruction. Okay. Ego, de- ego deconstruction, <laughs> philosophical reconstruction, and that like makes all the um, it's politically correct, and everybody's happy except me because it's so boring. Yeah. <laughs> like you don't think you're indoctrinated? <laughs> you don't think you're part of a cult? <laughs> oh God. And so, the, where's the? He's going to go out and read the book. The guy is listening right now. He's going to go read the book, and then where does he? Where does he get to sign up or, or get to? really explore and experience the Mondo Zen process for himself? Or if he just wants to dive in today, what can he do? Well, it's open technology. Just go to mondozen.org and read the training manual. So it's right there. You just download it and you can do it yourself. You can, you can yeah. screw up your friends with it. Well, yeah. And what I'm doing is like uh, next month, uh, I've got 43 people coming uh, to a teacher training in, in Colorado. And that's, uh, you know, the, the retreat schedule is posted on the site as well, on the Zen site. But there, it's, it's a trick. In order to manifest this transformation in your life, it's essential that you're, you are able to teach it. 
Because if you can't teach it, you don't own it as a structure. Mm. If you don't own it as a structure, you're living through your previous your, incarn- your previous incarnation. So the new incarnation is one that changes your reference. Fear, from this point of view, is excitement and opportunity. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Fear is so delicious. It's, mm. it's almost as good as sex, fear. Mm. And mm. anger is intense clarity of mind and deep caring and boundary. It's not violent. So get it. Get that change. And then when you experience the old energy arising, you start laughing. Because no one, no one, no one has ever made you angry. No one has ever shamed you. No one has ever made you dissociate. Those are conditioned reactor responses based on animal patterns of flight and fright or freezing. And then sociopolitical conditioning. We live in a culture that says there's something called justifiable anger. Where does that come from? Justifiable violence? Mm. And so anger, what you're saying is that anger naturally can arise, but we have a choice in there. We were on, you talked about this the last time you were on the show, that we have a choice to recognize what anger really is. Anger will arise, but what you'll experience is the truth of what's arising. Deep, deep caring and intense, fierce presence and clarity. This matters. This really matters to me. I'm extremely angry. I'm mm. not violent. Violent is a violence is a choice. So we're calling anger a feeling, but we're actually talking about as a violent choice of intervention. And once you're awake, now when you this feeling comes up, it's like yes, I really care about this, and I'm a dangerous son of a bitch mm. because I'm no longer confused by the noise of the violent projection or interjection. It's a powerful distinction because you know, for the rest of us that are that are still struggling to to kind of bring up this awareness, we hear some we hear this message that. Wow, it's just not good to be angry. And I think a lot of guys already have shame around their anger. They already ha- they already feel bad when they're angry. It's not okay. It's not okay to be a man and to be angry. And we don't want to compound that. But what you're saying is that we can rewire ourselves to recognize, wait a second, when I'm angry, this just means that I really care. I'm really concerned about what's going on. And I can choose a different response versus becoming violent with my anger. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And that's what you do is... Your angst becomes your liberator. When you when you recognize that that what anger you're experiencing is is a violent contraction or projection, when you've got that and understand that, then when it happens, you you stay with the anger, which is again is incredibly delicious. Anger is not violent. The violence is ugly and 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 but you you get to choose because you always have. No one has ever made you angry. No one has ever, ever made you angry. You have chosen that response. Now, that response philosophically and neurolinguistically is established in a memory pattern that's very deep. So when you put the new philosophical construct and neurolinguistic in place and anchor it with meditation practice, you now have a why in the road. Conditions arise, feeling starts, the energy is felt, and you go to the left instead of the right. Mondo Zen, Mondo Zen rewires us basically to say, wait a second, I don't have to do the same old pattern anymore whenever I get pissed off or frustrated. I, I've got a whole new set of choices here that are less destructive and actually more in service of what really needs to happen right now. Exactly. And your angst becomes your liberation. Excellent. So we're not trying to steer away from it or avoid it or uh, act like it doesn't happen. We just have created more choice for ourselves. Yeah, you go deeper into it and really feel it. Oh, my God. It sounds like we can play more in life now. Yeah, what you get it is that's what it is. Life is play. (laughs) Yeah. 
right, you know? Sometimes it's shit, and sometimes it isn't. It's like, you know, it's like I tell people, you know, if they shit on your plate, eat it, right? And you go, God, somebody shit on my plate. What is this? Eat it. And then I like to look at them and grin and go, what did they eat last night? <laughs> And I will be writing that one down. (laughs) There's a lot of very deep, complex material in this discussion, and I'll admit that I'm hesitant to summarize it, especially since Junpo has hit me with a stick for screwing up in the past. That said, here are some of the takeaways from this talk with Junpo. Let's do this. Number one, many of us get on this spiritual or personal development path and fall into the perfection trap. At least I did. Junpo's life experience shows us that it's not about being perfect. In fact, it's downright messy. Number two, Junpo's experience as a young boy, what the Buddhists call samadhi, was one of deep clarity, peace, and fearlessness. This experience was the common denominator in sex, the drug adventures, and ultimately his own spiritual practice. The trap snaps shut when we turn this experience into an escape from our ordinary mind, our ordinary emotions, and our ordinary life. Number three, the boring, slow way to samadhi and stabilizing awareness is through meditation, rigorous meditation for hours a day, year after year. If you consider the amount of sex and drugs Junpo has consumed, his dedication to meditation speaks volumes about this practice. Number four, at first, most meditators begin sitting simply for stability in their lives. They want to find some sense of peace amidst the chaos. There could be a striving quality to this experience, one of chasing after something or being attached to some utopian outcome. One day, after I've meditated for 20 years, I'll finally be free, and this is yet another trap. The profound moment with his abbot showed Junpo that he was striving. His effort and striving and seeking were actually holding him back. His insight and peace came from letting go. Number five, according to Junpo, when we quote, wake up, life doesn't suddenly become la-la land. We are still humans living as humans. We have people problems and people emotions and people issues. Again, there's no escape from this. But by being awake, we have a different set of tools for these experiences. We get to use them to deepen our experience of life even further. And life becomes more playful. And number six, Anger simply means that we care deeply about something or we've been hurt or that we're scared. The practice of meditation in Mondo Zen allows us to slow things down and then choose a different response based on deep care instead of reacting violently. If you realize that you're angry, simply stay with the feeling. Let it inform you. What does it really truly mean? Junpo says that your angst is your liberation, which really means that by embracing your anger, you'll find greater freedom and peace on the other side. Now, this flies in the face of what most of us have been taught, which is to stuff our anger, to dismiss our anger and push it away. Consider that by stuffing or dismissing your experience, you're actually building your own prison cell. All right, so MondoZen.org, that's where they can check it out. That's, there's trainings and there's uh, dates and all kinds yeah, of things. There are the stories there. There are two things that are there. There's a book list and, you know, there's a reading list. And there's and there's also, there you can sign up for the newsletter if you were interested in it. And that, that just once a month, it's a one-pager we send out. This time it's got pictures of my wedding. You know, it's, it's, it's a, we're a little family, we're a little cyber sangha. I don't have a physical center myself. Okay. Uh, I travel around and teach and, you know, I'm real hard to work with. You got to plan I want it. you to wait. I want you to get the joke and wake the fuck up. Beautiful. Right? 
Beautiful. And it's not about, you know, being tied to somebody's apron strings or becoming, you know, I am not a Buddhist. Right. Oh, okay. I'm not, I'm not a Buddhist. Right. I, I, I follow the path. I follow the way. I am the Buddha. Mm. Right. And Buddha simply means awake. I'm finally awake. Right. And, you know, it's like there was my path had to be the radical, difficult path. Um, karmically, that's what had to happen. That's what had to happen. And, yeah. And I wouldn't miss it either. You know, my life has been, you know, quite hysterical. You know. Well, it certainly is a great, great story, even if um, I, I hope the listeners out there all get a chance to meet you and, and get to hang with you. I, you're one of my favorite people on the planet. I love you so much. And uh, the story is great, even if, it, you know, as much of it, it can possibly try to represent the life that you've had. And, um, and yeah, then now you're teaching along. It skips along, right? It was about twice as long at first, and then we edited it, and then, and then the publisher knocked another thirty percent out. So it it just skips along, but it gives. It's so far the feedback's been great. People I respect a lot just said, "Yeah, it's a great, it's a great yarn," and it's uh, it's all true. Good, good deal, man. All right, buddy. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome anytime. Uh, if you ever want to talk about anything, I'd love to have you back and, um, hope to do it soon. Thanks so much. And, uh, uh, also everyone, I really encourage you to, you know, stay tuned to trip because, uh, he's the real thing (laughs) (laughs) and he's evolving. (laughs) We hope, right? (laughs) Right. All right. Love to the family, brother. Love you too, man. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. There's so much more to The New Man than these interviews. So visit thenewmanpodcast.com and join the mailing list so you never miss another update. Thanks for listening.